It's called the Lord's Supper. And that always struck me a little funny. Nobody eats supper anymore. It's always dinner. What's for dinner? Let's go out for dinner. You know who used to call it supper? My mom when I was a kid. It'd start getting late. The sun would be sliding down the horizon. And I'd be out riding. Not heading anywhere in particular. Well, that's when Mom would start calling. And I could stall for a while, take a couple more loops around the block. Michael, supper! So I'd head for the house, stash away my bike, and dash on in. Michael, what have I told you about slamming the door? Sorry, Mom. Okay, go wash up for supper. So I'd go and wash up. Sort of. I could zip those hands under the water without even getting them wet. And I'd go stomping back into the kitchen. Wash them again. I just did. Let me see. Well, I'd turn around and shuffle back to the bathroom without even showing her because we both know what she'd see if she looked. This time I really scrubbed. And you know, standing there scrubbing, I could see what she meant. Those hands were dirty. Grease and dirt and mud, just filthy. I liked it, but Mom didn't, so I scrubbed, and I rinsed, and I dried, and I ran back to the kitchen where Mom just wanted me to sit still and wait. I could be watching TV or playing video games. Who wants to sit and watch someone mash potatoes? Although, Mom and I did get a lot talked about during those five minutes. She talked to me about my schoolwork, if I'd been nice to my sister, all that stuff about being kind and responsible. And watching her just moving around the kitchen, working so hard on supper, I could really feel her love for me. I guess that's where I began to understand that family supper time is important. Hey, hon, how's dinner coming? <laughs> Sooner or later, everybody else showed up. And even though she wasn't quite done, Mom would sit down and we could say the blessing. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this food. Thank you for providing for our family. Dad's prayers were very real. We weren't just flying through some ritual before diving into the food. We were talking to God himself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Dad would ask the Lord's blessing, and then he'd ask my mom to pass the fruit salad. Usually about then I'd start reaching across for the rolls, which Mom always seemed to put on the far side of the table. So I waited and passed the fruit salad and the potatoes and the green beans until finally those rolls came around. That was kind of tough for me. But you sort of figured out that everyone else was hungry too, and no one's going to let you starve. Well, finally we got to eat, and it was worth the wait. Mom put everything she had into her cooking. You could taste it, although it's surprising I could taste anything slamming down those huge mouthfuls so I could get to tonight's TV show. So I'd slow down a little, and I could see that Mom and Dad had lots to catch up on, so I'd chug down my milk and gasp those all-important words. And I'd be free. So that's what I think of when I hear the word supper. Someone who wants me to come home. To wash up. 
to enjoy being clean more than I enjoy being dirty. Someone who wants me to sit just for a little while and think about my life, how much I'm loved. Some quiet, serious prayer, passing plates so others can be filled too. Small bites and careful thinking. And those all important words. May I be excused? And the awesome resonance of the answer. Yes, you may. And being free. More than 18 times in Scripture, Jesus would say, I am, and then he would use a description to uh, help his followers understand who he was. He would describe himself as the door, as the bread of life, the way, the truth, the resurrection. Um, Over and over, he defines himself. Jesus knew exactly who he was, and as, as a result, he was not under pressure from other people. It's the principle of identity. If you don't know who you are, then you're going to be pressured by other people to fit into their molds. They will manipulate you. They will try to give you um, things to do that, that they want you to do in, in your life, which may or may not be what God created you to do. One of the major causes of stress comes from trying to be somebody that you're not, and you have to keep up this facade, and there's a lot of energy that goes into keeping up this facade, and you're afraid that somebody's going to find out causes stress. The only way to counterbalance outside stress is to come to this internal idea of who you are and whose you are. So we're going to spend some time today talking about this meaning of the Lord's Supper, and then hopefully by the end you'll know very clearly whose you are, and you'll be able to come to the table with a uh, clear conscience, knowing that you've done everything you could up to this point to be clean in God's presence. So we're going to go way back to the Old Testament, and we're going to think about... When uh, they instituted something called the Passover. Uh, Imagine that you're in Egypt and you are a teenager, maybe a young teenager, and dad decides that he's going to uh, go out into the shed. You see what's going on in Egypt right now is nine plagues have not convinced Pharaoh that he's supposed to let God's people go. Moses kept going and saying, God says, let my people go. And, And Pharaoh keeps saying, no, nine plagues didn't convince him. And God's got a tenth thing up his sleeve. So your dad, you're walking with him, you go out and he says, uh, we're going to find the best lamb. And so you're helping him. You look around, you find the best lamb. Dad takes the lamb, he walks into the shed and he gets his killing utensil and he's about to strike the, the lamb when you say, dad, what are you doing? He said, well, I've got to kill the lamb. And he says, why? What did the lamb do? And dad says, nothing. But we have sinned against God and he's angry with our nation. And if I don't kill the lamb... And take the blood and spread it on the doorposts, you'll be dead by morning. So son, it's either the lamb or it's you. If you're the 12-year-old son, which one do you want to die? It's the lamb. Kill the lamb. No matter how cute it is, kill the innocent spotless lamb. And when this happened, the Israelites painted the blood over the doorpost. The death angel comes and passes over. That's how they got the idea of this. To pass over means to to not render guilty or to not see the guilt. And so the death angel would pass over all the doorposts, all the homes where there was blood on the doorpost. And the death angel would enter and kill all the firstborn where there wasn't blood on the doorpost. 
And when this happened, Pharaoh just about chased the Israelites out of Egypt because he wanted them gone. They were, they were um, an odor in his nostrils. He wanted them out of there. And so when you jump to the New Testament and you hear this verse, Hebrews 9.22, it says, The law says that almost everything must be made clean by blood. And then look at this. And sins cannot be forgiven without blood to show death. You see, God commanded the Israelites to celebrate the Passover every year on the 15th month, uh, 15th day of the first month of the new year. And during the Old Testament times, the Jewish priests would traditionally kill the lamb, the Passover sacrifice, at 3 p.m. Um, in the afternoon after blowing the shofar. The shofar was a ram's horn, a special horn that they would blow to uh, um, alert the Israelites that something significant had happened. So people would be going around Jerusalem doing their thing during the day. They would hear the ram's horn and they would pause and they would remember. An innocent lamb is being killed, so I don't have to be. Some blood is being spilled so that I don't have to pay the price for my sins. So the priest would kill it at 3, at 3.30, he would offer the sacrifice, followed by the daily sacrifice. Both the daily sacrifice and the Passover sacrifice were offered to symbolically cleanse the nation of Israel from their sins. Because sins cannot be forgiven without blood to show death. So in the New Testament, when John the Baptist is preaching, and everybody's coming out to hear what John the Baptist is doing and saying, and Jesus comes walking along to the Jordan River, John looks up and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And people didn't really, they, they knew what he was saying, but they didn't know what he was saying. Because in the Old Testament system, up to that, there would always been an innocent lamb, an innocent third party had to shed its blood, had to die so that guilty sinners could go free. When John points at Jesus and says, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, they weren't sure what was going on. Because the high priest was the person who sacrificed the lamb. Jesus changed things, though, because he comes and he doesn't sacrifice a lamb. He becomes the lamb and sacrifices himself because you cannot have sins forgiven without blood to show death. So at exactly 3 p.m., the ninth hour, if you read this in the, in the New Testament, the ninth hour at 3 p.m., Jesus dies on the cross. At the same time that they're killing the sacrifice, the Passover lamb in Jerusalem, outside of Jerusalem, a cursed man on a tree, innocent third party, becomes the once for all sacrifice for sins. And just as that was happening, Jesus looks up into heaven. It wouldn't surprise me if the shofar went off at that time because God's a God of details. At 3 p.m. the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Father, I give you my life. And after Jesus said this, he died. And, and we know from other eyewitness testimony that the, the veil in the temple was torn in two. See, the veil in the temple separated what is called the holy place, the most holy place. It's called the Holy of Holies. Separated it from where the common priest could go. Only the high priest could walk into the Holy of Holies one time a year. It was on the Day of Atonement. And it, that's only if he did everything right. If he didn't do everything right to purify himself and the people from sin, as he walked in there, he would fall over dead. No one else could get him, so they had a little rope tied around his ankle, had a bell on it. If they heard the bell tinkling, they knew the high priest was still alive. If the bell wasn't tinkling, they knew he was dead, so they would pull him out. And they would wait till the next year, and they would. And I can guarantee you the next high priest would do everything right so that he didn't die in the presence of a holy God. And so that we know that the temple, the veil was ripped in two, and that was to signify... What had been separated for generations to the common people was now open to you and me because the once for all sacrifice for sins had died 
And as long as you have a relationship with Him, the Bible says we can come boldly to God's throne to receive mercy and find help in our time of need. You don't have to come through me. You don't have to go through a priest. You are a kingdom of priests, the Bible says, if you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So you can come to the temple yourself. Now, all of that's background. Let's look in the New Testament and see... um, what they have to say about the whole Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 11, 23-31. By the way, if you have a smartphone, you can follow us uh, on version. Just type in 75801 and all of the scripture and all that's on there. Here's what Paul says. <clears throat> He's going back to the beginning, the basics of the Lord's Supper. And he says, the teaching I gave you is the same teaching I received from the Lord. Now, what happens is Paul is one who's persecuting the church. Paul gets radically saved. He goes away for several years. He's trained. He finds out what's going on. He studies scripture. And he says, here's what I'm passing on to you. The very basics of our faith. On the night when Jesus, on the, when the Lord Jesus was handed over to be killed, he took bread and gave thanks for it. Then he broke the bread and said, this is my body. It is for you. Do this to remember me. In the same way, after they ate, Jesus took the cup. He said, this cup is the new agreement that is sealed with the blood of my death. When you drink this... Do it to remember me. Every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are telling others about the Lord's death until he comes. So a person who eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in a way that is not worthy of it will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Look into your own hearts before you eat the bread and drink the cup. Because all who eat the bread and drink the cup without recognizing the body, eat, talking about the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment against themselves. That is why many in your group are sick and weak and many have died. But if we judged ourselves in the right way, God would not judge us. Okay, so Paul's given us the basics and he tells us that the value of the experience of the Lord's Supper. And we do it a little bit different here. We don't pass the plate like you saw in the video. The value of the experience of the Lord's Supper depends on the condition of the hearts of the people who partake of the Lord's Supper. That was the problem in Corinth. The people, the way they were doing the Lord's Supper, they would have this feast, and it was called an agape feast, meaning love, and they were supposed to feed people, and they weren't feeding people. The, the rich people were coming and eating, and they were ignoring the poor people, and then the poor people would come, there wouldn't be any food, and then they would participate in what's called the Lord's Supper. And Paul says, because you are profaning the name, the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, many of you are sick. You're weak. Some people of you have actually died because you took the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. You made a mockery of what Jesus did on the cross. And he says, don't you dare do that. So, that's kind of scary. You mean if I drink it in an unworthy manner, I might die? Well, the Bible says that's a possibility. But let me tell you how you can take the Lord's Supper without having to worry about that. So, there's several things we need to do. First, we've got to look back at Jesus' death. Jesus said that whenever we take the Lord's Supper, do this to remember me. And the original supper happened the night before Jesus was crucified. And he wants us to remember three things. These are your points. We remember that he died. So the first thing we're supposed to do when we see the Lord's Supper, we're supposed to remember Jesus hanging on a cross. It's not the life of Jesus. It's not even his teachings that save us. It's the death of the innocent third party. As a substitutionary payment for my sins, for your sins, that's what we remember. It's his death that saves us, not his life, not even his word. His word teaches and his word feeds us, but it's his death as a substitutionary payment for your sin and for mine that we're supposed to remember. Second, we remember why he died. 
A substitute for our sins. He paid a debt that you and I had absolutely no possibility of paying. His blood, if poured, if, if applied to the doorpost of your life, of our hearts, causes the death angel to pass over us. Because of, if, when his blood is applied to your life, your sins are no longer evident to the death angel. It's not because you're uh, innocent. It's because someone else has died in your place. And with the shedding of blood, blood there is forgiveness of sins. Your sins have been washed as white as snow is what the scripture says. And then we remember how he died. Jesus chose to give up his life. No one forced him to do it. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, the mob came out to arrest him. You remember what Peter did? He took a sword and he cut off the ear of the high priest's servant. You remember what Jesus did then? He said, put that away. He fixes the guy's ear, which if you're in the mob and somebody just reattaches an ear, it quits bleeding, it's perfect. I don't know, man. I don't think I'd arrest that dude. But Jesus says it must happen this way. Look what he says in Matthew 26, 53 and 54. He's saying this to, to Peter. Surely you know that I could ask my father and he would give me more than 12 armies of angels, legions of angels. So about 12,000, he's saying, he's saying, wait, wait, wait. Peter, you're a fisherman. You swung. I imagine you tried to chop off his head. You hit his ear. You, you suck as, as a swordsman. This is my translation. <laughs> and he's saying, I don't need you to defend me, Peter. Because I have armies which you can't even see. And if I just say the word, my father will send thousands of warring angelic beings to defend me. But look what he says. But it must happen this way to bring about what the scriptures say. Jesus saying, I've got to do what my father has already written down. I must always be about my father's business. So stop trying to do it your way. This is the way that it has to be. He took upon himself the sins of the world because he loved us and he knew we could never get to heaven because we're sinful people. The remembering we're supposed to do is not just about the historical facts surrounding the Lord's Supper. At the Lord's table, we don't walk around some monument to the dead or some statue. The tomb we're remembering is empty. The only founder of any world religion whose bones are not still in his grave. The tomb is empty. That's what we're to remember. So we come to the table not to remember a dead person, but we come to the table to celebrate one who is alive. Now, let me pause here and, and do a bit more background. In Exodus, you remember once they came out of uh, Egypt, they wander around the wilderness and they go to Mount Sinai. Well, they get on Mount Sinai. The ten suggestions? Commandments. Ten commandments. So Moses goes up and gets all these. And by the way, that's only ten. There's more than ten. That's just, you know, the big ten that you know about. In Exodus 24, Moses comes back down and he reads all of these things to the people. And he says, okay, God says we've got to do this, got to do this, got to do this. And God says, if we do that, he'll be our God, he'll lead us. And here's what the people said. They answered out loud together. We will do all the things that the Lord said. So Moses builds this altar. Now this is kind of interesting because this, this shows how we are as humans. They said, oh yeah, we promise we'll do what God says. And just about four or five chapters later, they build an, a golden calf and they bow down to worship it. And they say, this is the, the God who brought you out of Egypt. I mean... We're just fickle human beings. But when they said, we're going to do everything that God says, Moses built an altar. He set up 12 stones, one for each tribe, 12 tribes of, of Israel. And then they killed some animals for a sacrifice. 
Now, half of the blood he put into a bowl, half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar because the altar can't be declared clean unless the the, uh, blood of an innocent third party is spilled and it's sprinkled. So then the other half that's in the bowls, he takes and he throws it on the people to cover their sins. And he says, this is the blood that begins the covenant. This is the first covenant, the old covenant, the Old Testament covenant. So the Old Testament was sealed with blood. Now, a little bit later in the Old Testament, Jeremiah is a prophet, and this passage promises a new covenant. Read it with me. Jeremiah is talking about the future, and he says, This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel at that time, sometime in the future, says the Lord. I will put my teachings in their minds and write, on them their, write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Now, he was talking about when Jesus came, and Jesus stands up and he says, i got a new covenant for you. And this cup in the covenant represents the new covenant. It was sealed with blood, and it's very, very special. Now, some of you heard this before, and some of you hadn't. But in the Passover meal, there's all of these things. I was reading about it just this morning, reading some of the historical things. In the Passover meal, there's all these different things they're supposed to do. They eat unleavened bread because the night before they were to leave, they didn't have time to let the bread rise. So um, they still, to this day, Jews, 67% of Jews still observe the Passover, even though only 47% of Jews actually go to the synagogue or the temple. I don't understand that. But that's how significant the Passover is to them. So they eat unleavened bread because it represents they didn't have time to grab much. And they have these four cups... The third cup is called the cup of redemption. Now, a redeemer is someone who would come and purchase you, someone who would rescue you from a a hopeless situation. Um, They had the idea a lot of times people would be in slavery and a redeemer would be one who would come and purchase them. A, A true redeemer would purchase them out of slavery and set them free. And no one else could bind them again. So the idea of a redeemer is one who... Helps you out of a situation that you cannot help yourself out of. He bails you out of a hopeless situation. And the Redeemer does something for you can't do for yourself. So at this point in the meal, third cup, Jesus picks up the cup of redemption and he says to this motley group of men, some of y'all went dove hunting, I'm going dove hunting later. And man, when guys come in from dove hunting, because it's hot, dirty, it is stanky. That's what I picture. Jesus is with this motley group of men. And he picks up this third cup and he goes, will you marry me? Now, to us, that's really weird. Men, you know, and in the scripture, it's very weird. Men don't marry men. Jesus wasn't talking about a physical union. Jesus is talking about a spiritual union. Because in the New Testament, what is the the church called? It's called the bride of Christ. That would make him the groom. And so he stops in the middle of this thing and he he attaches a new meaning to this third cup. He says, will you marry me? And what he's saying is, if you drink this cup, and they understood, the Jewish mind knew this. He referred to the wedding. When a man would go to to, uh, negotiate the dowry and, and the price for the bride, the last thing he would do after the dads agreed to everything, he would walk up to the bride and he would offer her the cup. And he was saying, I'm offering you my life. And if you drink the cup, everybody knew that meant, yes, I accept your offer and I give you my life in return. You're pledging yourself to the person who offers the cup. And, and I remember proposing, Janie, you remember that, don't you? A little over 21 years ago, we were at the Hemisphere Tower in, in San Antonio. I usually don't get flustered, but that night I could not get there. Y'all been there? I mean, dude, you can see it from everywhere. I kept missing it. 
And Janie, you know, because I'm usually very precise, I get where I'm going normally, and I'm going, there it is. And I turn around, there it goes. And I finally get there, you know, and I had the little ring in my pocket and had to make sure she was on the other side. And, and uh, you know, we have this whole meal. And, and the only thing I remember is you and the dude who took our picture. That's the only thing I, I really remember from the, from the whole night. But I slid the ring in front of her. And she's thinking it's earrings because I told her I was too broke to, to buy a ring. And, and I popped open the case and I said, will you marry me? Now, she understood very clearly the implications. I was offering, because we talked about this, I said, when we get married, I don't, I'm, I'm not divorcing. And I don't want to marry somebody who, who has an option to divorce out there as an escape clause. She said, nope, I'm good with that. So she knew that when, if she said yes and she put that ring on, she's saying, I accept your life and I offer you my life in return. Very, very clear that night. Well, when we come to the Lord's Supper table and you take this cup and you're remembering Christ, you are saying that I pledge my life. I accept the gift that Jesus Christ offered on the cross and I pledge my life in return. I'm no longer the boss of my life. Jesus Christ is the boss of my life. And we should always remember that on the night before he died, Jesus said this, Matthew 26, 39. He'd been praying. He went on a little farther and he fell on his face down on the ground praying. My father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will, not mine. You see, Jesus knew how bad the suffering was going to be. Jesus, God's son, sinless lamb of God, come to take away the sins of the world, said, this is going to be tough. And if if there's any other way, God, I don't want to do this. And then he says these words that very few of us pray at the end of our prayers. Yet not what I want. What you want. He knew that there would be a very high price to purchase his bride. And become our spiritual husband. So the Lord's Supper is all about remembering the death of Christ on the cross. But it's not just about that. There's some other things that he wants you to remember. We look back and we remember his death. But we also remember what he said about the future. The second thing is, we must look ahead to Christ's return. And this is the words of Jesus. He said, you do this until I return. You're actually proclaiming a sermon. Every promise that Jesus ever made, he's kept. The ones that haven't been fulfilled yet yet will be fulfilled in the future. I don't know if you've you've studied promises in Scripture that have come true. Prophecies that have come true. Promises that, that God has fulfilled. Well, one of them he said was... I'm coming back for my bride. So when we take the Lord's Supper, he says, as often as you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes back again. Number three, we have to look within. Now, this is what we're talking about, self-examination. Paul didn't say that we have to be worthy to take the Lord's Supper because none of us are worthy. What he said was we have to come to the table in a worthy manner. So let's what does that mean? He tells us, he said, if we examine our own hearts and we confess our sins, God forgives us. To come to the table with unconfessed sin is to live lives and and be guilty of Christ's body and blood because sin is what nailed him to the cross in the first place. So you profane Christ's body when you knowingly are committing sin, when you're not ready to give up that sin and you come and you take the Lord's Supper. 
Paul said, if you'll examine yourself in the right manner, God will not have to judge you. Self-judgment, not others' judgment. That's why in, that is why many in your group are sick and weak and many have died because you have come in an unworthy manner. So, I'm to judge me, not my neighbor. Because you know what it's like in church. Huh. I can't believe he's taking the Lord's Supper. I saw him the other day. It's not about that. God says, I'll take care of him. You got enough problems of your own. You don't need to be looking around. You need to look at yourself and compare yourself to Christ. When you start comparing yourselves to others, you're either going to say, I'm not as good as them, and you're going to feel worse about yourself, or you're going to say, I'm better than them, and you're going to have pride. So you look at Christ and you go, you say what, what Isaiah said when he was in the temple and he had a vision of the Lord. Isaiah goes, oh, no. I am undone is what he says. I'm a messed up man because I have seen God. I'm a sinful man. He thought he was going to die. If you ever catch a glimpse of Jesus and you really see his purity, you'll quit judging other people. Because you'll be consumed by his holiness and you'll say, I have no place to judge anybody else. It's between you and God, not you and your neighbor. God will deal with them. Number four, we must look around. Now, God expects unity in the body of Christ. And anything that causes disunity is sin. Does gossip cause disunity? Does fighting cause disunity? Does uh, bitterness cause disunity? Does lack of forgiveness cause disunity? All those things cause disunity, which means it's sin. We look around not to judge others, but, but to make sure we're in right fellowship with others. It's impossible for a true Christian, listen to this, it's impossible for a true Christian to get closer to God while they have animosity in their hearts towards another brother or sister in Christ. Impossible. So, it is highly appropriate today, if, you, if, if you're praying, you're examining your heart, and God says, you got a problem with this person, or they have a serious problem with you, it is very proper for you to say, Lord, I am not going to take the Lord's Supper today, but I'm going to leave this place, and I'm going to go and try to make things right. Don't you dare come up here because somebody else came up here. That's not the right thing to do. Now, I'm not trying to scare you, but I want you to realize the seriousness of this moment. Christ died because you and I are sinners. And so once we examine our hearts, you need to sit there. You don't need to be rushing up here to take the Lord's Supper. You need to examine. You say, God, I'm thankful for the death of Jesus on the cross. I'm thankful that he didn't stay in the tomb. He rose from the dead. God, is there sin in my life? David said, Lord, show me my secret sin. If there's something you've been pretending that's not a sin, you need God to show you. Spend some time asking God to show you. And then if God shows you that there's a relationship that's not right with somebody else, you need to get off of your rear and go make it right as best of your ability. Some people you can't make peace with. And, and I've talked to you some, some of you about that. So if this is an ongoing thing and you've made an effort and, and your heart is pure, you've done what you can, then you just say, God, I did, I've done what I can and I want to partake of the Lord's Supper today. And you come without guilt. Let's do a little bit of examining today. But you don't want to come in an unworthy manner. So we're going to play a video. I've played this many times. One of my favorite songs. I want you to examine your hearts. And then after that, we'll open up. There's a table here. There's a table here. And there's a table at the back. Just go to the, the closest table uh, to you. 
And remember that the bread represents the body of Jesus Christ broken for you. The cup, the juice, represents his blood spilled for you. And if you're not a Christ follower, the Bible says, call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. You say, God, the way we say it here is, is while you're praying, you say, God, I need you to forgive my sin and lead my life. The Bible says when you do that, God adopts you into his family and all of heaven throws a party because another lost sinner has come home. Watch this video, and when you're ready, go to the nearest table.